past week, I heard about one person who took up the challenge to read through the Bible in one year, as we exhorted people to do at the beginning of this year. And uh, he was able to actually understand what's going on over here because you've been reading through Leviticus and Numbers and, and all of those chapters. And so I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, if you're reading through some of those chapters, it could be maybe a little bit difficult to understand and all sorts of numbers and all sorts of measurements and all sorts of things and wondering what does this actually mean? Well, that's one of the reasons for this series of Emmanuel in the Tabernacle. And so I just want to give us a little reminder of why we're studying this whole thing is because when God gave uh, Moses the pattern of the tabernacle and told Moses what he wanted him uh, to do, it was all for this one particular reason and focus and purpose is that he wanted to dwell with his people. In Exodus 25 and verse 8, as it says, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Isn't that a beautiful promise that we can claim as well? That if we are a sanctuary for the Lord, his presence will be with us. And a a couple of verses, uh, chapters later in Exodus 29, you see this portion of scripture where it talks about how God desires to be with his people. I've, I've highlighted a few portions here. It says, there I will meet with you. When he talks about making this tabernacle, I will meet the people, right? I will live among them. I could live among them. All of these different phrases and all of these different things that God is saying here because of his deep desire to have relationship with his people. It all started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve as we looked at Emmanuel in the Old Testament and we see this developing relationship, this desire that God had for humanity to to have relationship with him. And so he desires to dwell with us. And so as we're looking at the tabernacle, there's lots of things. If you're reading through Leviticus or Numbers, there's lots of details of so many different things that are in the tabernacle. We're looking primarily at six major things, and that's the altar burnt offering, the wash basin, the candlestick, the bread of the presence, the altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant, and that's going to take us into, into Easter. And so last, last Sunday, uh, we looked at this particular item here known as the altar of burnt offering, and we talked about how this altar of burnt offering reflects how uh, Jesus came and died for us. He was the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. He shed his blood for us, and how you would come and uh, bring your, your sacrifice here to the altar burnt offering you would lay your hands upon the animal that was there and confess your sin the priest would kill the animal and the animal would be burnt here on the altar and if there was a priest that was officiating say for example if I was the priest that was officiating that sacrifice and thanks be to the Lord that in the New Testament time uh, we are all priests unto the Lord God has called us all to be kings and priests unto him in uh, in first Peter 2 verse 9 it talks about that how we are a royal priesthood to the Lord but if I was in the Old Testament and I was one of the priests officiating that and having a uh, uh, killed an animal and blood splattering all over the place well guess what I'm going to be a little bit messy. Have you ever gone to a butcher shop and seen a perfectly clean butcher? Probably not, right? And so realizing that, the second item that we're going to look at is this. And this is what's known as the wash basin, okay? Or in an older style language, they called it the laver, a place where the priests would come and wash. And they were specifically asked to wash their feet and wash their hands so that they would be clean before they went into the the holy place. 
Now, this, this wash basin that was made, the unique thing about this item in comparison to all the other items in the tabernacle, all the other items in the tabernacle were given specific measurements, specific dimensions, said specifically how the size that it was supposed to be made, except the wash basin. You can read and read and read. You won't find measurements for the wash basin. It wasn't given. I'll, I'll get to that a little bit later. There was no measurements for that. The second thing is that uh, it was made of brass. It was actually made from the mirrors that the women had that they would use you know, to, to look at themselves. And that's, what it was, that's what it was made of. Uh, in, the, in the temple of Solomon, which was the first actual physical temple that was made, not like a, a tent area that the children of Israel had as they journeyed throughout the wilderness, uh, the wash basin was huge. And so historians actually think that probably the priests from Solomon's time onwards actually probably bathed themselves completely in the wash basin because of how big it was, right? Uh, because Solomon just made everything huge, right? And he had lots of gold and lots of things to spend. After the, after the wash basin, when you come into this place, which is the, called the, the holy place, okay? You have the, the bread of the presence. You have the candlestick. And then you have the altar of, of incense. And we'll talk about these three items in, in coming Sundays. And then there was a, a veil. There was a separation here between what was called the, the holy place that's here and the most holy place. And the high priest, there was, all, there, was, there was priests that could come and minister in this area, but only one priest, known as the high priest, could go into this most holy place. And that only once in a year that he would go into this most holy place. And in that was what's called the, the Ark of the Covenant. And if you watched Indiana Jones and things like that, you probably would have seen things about search for the Ark, you know, and, and things like that. But this was a, a very holy place here. It's called the, the most holy place where the glory of God dwelt. And so we'll get to that as we conclude, uh, conclude our series. So, but the priests had to wash themselves here in this wash basin. Now, um, from what we understand is that Moses had Aaron and his sons who were the priests wash themselves completely once before they came in, but as they would, uh, when the tabernacle was dedicated. But after that, when they offered sacrifices, then they would just come and wash their hands and their feet in this wash basin. And then they would come and minister in the holy place and the high priest once a year into the most holy place. But again, when, when Solomon made his tabernacle, his temple, he made this wash basin because remember, there were no dimensions given. And so he made this wash basin huge. And so more than likely, priests would, you know, it's almost like a swimming pool, basically, right? But priests would probably be able to immerse themselves uh, in that. So today, uh, as we study this wash basin, I just want to go back to uh, a, a big overview as well, because I want us to always keep this in focus of what this actually means. As we study this tabernacle, we have to realize that Jesus is the true tabernacle, this is also a picture of our, of our spiritual journey, and, and I think you'll be able to see it a little bit today, because here we see a little bit of salvation, atonement, sacrifice, bloodshed, right? And then as you journey this way towards this place of the most holy place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelled, where God would speak, where God's presence was, there was a, there was a, a steps of sanctification and cleansing and holiness that would happen from that side all the way to this side. If you, if you see it in a broader picture, you would see death that was here. Animals would die. This is the area of death. And this area over here is the area of life. God takes us from death 
to life. In our spiritual journey, we go from being dead in our sins to alive unto God. We go from a place where we are dead and don't know the Lord to a place of life and life in all of its fullness and abundance. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Right? So this is the promise of the Lord. And as we journey from here all the way to the most holy place, there is this drawing closer to Jesus. There is this great understanding. And, and when we look at the bread and when we look at the candlestick, when we look at the altar of incense, we'll see this, this growth in our spiritual life, this growing towards greater intimacy with the Lord. As I talked about a little bit uh, last Sunday, how this is also a, a little bit of a picture of uh, Eden, where the outer court, this place would be considered the outer court, the whole, this whole outside area is the outer court, would be considered just uh, Eden. And the holy place and the most holy place you can consider the Garden of Eden, that God planted a garden in Eden, where Adam and Eve was. Where, and here in the most holy place, you can consider this area where the tree of life is. And as I mentioned before, this veil that separated the, the most holy place from the holy place, there were two cherubims that were embroidered on this veil. And it showed and it represented that the way into the most holy place was blocked by these cherubims in the similar way that when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God and disobeyed against God, God kicked them out of the garden. God kicked them out of the opportunity to eat from the tree of life. They weren't able to enjoy life in all of its fullness, life in all of its abundance, eternal life. They weren't able to enjoy all of those things because of their disobedience. And in many ways, as we're going towards this place of more life, there's something that's hindering there. There's those two cherubims. It re represents how this way to the tree of life was blocked. But thanks be to God, when Jesus died on Calvary, when Jesus died and the atonement was made for our sins without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. When Jesus died to cleanse and forgive us of our sins, there was a veil in that temple. At that time when Jesus died, it was known as Herod's temple, much bigger than this tabernacle, much bigger than all of what was represented here. There was this huge veil. And if you remember a couple of years ago for Easter, we, we put a black veil up here to represent that. And that veil was torn in two when Jesus died to show that the way into the most holy place, the way into life, to go from death to life was now made free, open, and for everyone to enjoy. And that's the beauty of studying this as we see this larger picture of the tabernacle. Because when Jesus came, as it says in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, or tabernacled with us. And he revealed the, the beauty and the glory of God. So I want to share three things with you about this labor as we study this a little bit. And, and the larger overarching theme about the labor is a place of cleansing, a place of purification, a place of sanctification. So after salvation, after this area of, of the burnt offering where the atonement is made, there's this place of cleansing and sanctification that God wants to bring us to. So the first thing is this, the wash basin points or is a, is a foreshadowing of the work of cleansing and sanctification in our lives. Because of what Jesus has done, he wants to bring cleansing and sanctification in our lives. As we just sang the song, Refiner's Fire, we want the Lord to change us and transform us and cleanse us. And there's two different types of sanctification primarily that we're asking the Lord to do in our life. One is called positional sanctification. 
What this means is that we are holy and pure and sanctified in the sight of God, not because of any good thing that we've done, not because of anything that we've tried or worked out by ourselves, but purely because of the finished work of Jesus on Calvary. Purely because of what Jesus has done for us, he looks down upon us and says we are holy in his sight. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, it says God saved you by his grace. I won't read all the verses. They're up on the... uh, up on the screen, and you can find them in our notes page as well. He saved us by his grace. We are holy in his sight. I don't know if you've ever read some of the uh, epistles of Paul, and he starts off writing, whether it's to the Corinthians or whether it's to the Colossians or, or whoever it might be, he starts off and he says, to you, holy saints in the Lord, for example, to the Corinthians, you are holy saints to the Lord, sanctified, pure, wonderful, and all of this amazing things he's saying in chapter one, And then you get to the end of chapter one or beginning of chapter two and it's like, and you have this problem and that problem and this thing you're doing wrong. It seems contradictory, doesn't it? Paul, you're telling me that I'm holy and beloved of God and I'm sanctified in his sight, but then you go and point out all of these things that I need to change. Isn't that contradictory? No, what it is, is it's positional sanctification. That we have to have the understanding that because of what Jesus has done for us, we are holy in his sight. We are pure in his sight because of what he has done for us, not because of what we have done. The word of God says it this way, that he has translated us or transformed us or or moved us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. We are now in this beautiful kingdom. But that doesn't mean that everything we do is going to be pure and holy. And that's why we get to the second thing, which is called progressive sanctification. And that's the, the outworking of our, in our lives of what the Spirit of God is doing in us to transform us and to change us. As Byron read in the scripture today from Colossians chapter 3, it talked, it gave a whole list of all of these unsanctified things, all these terrible things, all these things that you shouldn't do. And then it gave all of these lists of all these wonderful things, the character qualities that we should have as followers of Jesus. And underlying it all, it says, and the conclusion of it all is to love one another. And that's what God wants to do in our life is to change us and transform us. And that's called progressive sanctification. In 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, it talks about how we are changed and transformed into the image of God by the spirit of God. And it's not something that's going to happen instantaneously, but it's a lifetime work of discipleship to Jesus. It's a lifetime work of apprenticeship to Jesus. It's a lifetime work of us as we follow the spiritual disciplines, as we commit ourselves to the Lord, as we surrender to the Lord, as we ask the Lord to fill us more and more, as we ask for more of Jesus, as we're going to sing uh, today, as we conclude our service, as we make that prayer, Lord, I want more of you. Our life is changed and transformed. Paul says it this way in the book of Philippians. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved. The great apostle Paul, who we can look at him and say, oh, wow, he's done so many amazing and wonderful things. He must be such a holy saint. He says, I haven't already achieved these things, but I, uh, I am reaching forward. I'm pressing on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus has possessed me. I am going forward. I realize that I am not perfect in and of myself, but I'm pressing forward to what Jesus has for me. I think one of the things of the, the wash basin not having any dimensions, in a spiritual sense, it means that sanctification is a lifetime process. There's no dimensions to it. It could be so big. It could take us a lifetime. It could, it's, it's a lifetime journey. 
There's no dimensions to this, this wash basin. It's big enough for the biggest sins that we have. It's big enough for the chiefest of all sinners, Daniel Mills. It's big enough for any failure that we have. There is no limit to its dimensions. This process of cleansing, this process of sanctification, God is able to do it. Friends, don't be discouraged in your life. If you're looking at yourself and thinking, man, I'm still the same after all these years, trust in the mercies of the Lord. The laver, the wash basin is big enough for everyone. And we can be sanctified. In Colossians 3 and verse 10, it says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him and become like him. Let's seek to become like Jesus. It's a process of sanctification. It's not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen overnight. As we were talking about in our discipleship series, I think I gave the illustration of Jim, the piano player, that if I came up and just sat at the piano and just started to peck away, is it gonna sound good? No, you all can testify for it. There's video evidence, right? <laughs> Daniel doesn't sound good on the piano. But if Daniel wanted to sound good, it's gonna take a lifetime of learning, right? It's gonna take some discipline. It's gonna take some practice. It's gonna take some work on my part to practice some disciplines to get to that place. And in a similar way as we, uh, in our discipleship pathway to be disciples, to grow as disciples, and to make disciples, this growing as disciple takes something on our part to be able to practice the spiritual disciplines. Praise God that positionally we are sanctified and holy in the sight of God. But progressively, God is working in us, transforming us and changing us and sanctifying us so that we can become like Jesus. Number two, the wash basin points to the spiritual step of water baptism. We're having a water baptism that's coming up on April 21st, and I want to encourage you, whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you are new in your walk with the Lord, whether you've been walking with Jesus for many years, if you've never taken the step of water baptism, I want to encourage you to take the step of water baptism. I want to encourage you to come out to our baptism classes. I'm going to talk a little bit about it, but we'll go into much more uh, detail in our baptism class. But I want to encourage you to take that step of baptism. Here are a few things about baptism. It's a step of obedience. And we, we might look at baptism, and if you've been here for any amount of time at Unionville Alliance, we have a, a baptismal tank that's underneath the center screen. And if you've seen a baptism before, basically we take a person and we dunk them in water and we bring them back out of the water. That's what Jesus did for his disciples. And he baptized so many other people as well when he was here in this world. And it's a step of obedience. And sometimes it doesn't make sense in our, in our, in our physical, carnal, natural way of thinking. What is that going to do for me if I just go down in the water and come back up? If we try to reason within ourselves and try to figure out like, what is that? What's that going to do for me? Well, in our own reasoning and our understanding, we might, our, our carnal, finite mind cannot understand the spiritual things of the Lord. Even when Jesus was here in this world, he actually took the step to be baptized. In this passage in Matthew chapter 3, he came to John the Baptist who was baptizing people, and he told John, hey, can you baptize me? And John said, what, me? You want me to baptize you? You are Jesus, the Son of God. You should be baptizing me. But what did Jesus say in response? He said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. And so to, in obedience to this step, Jesus himself, the very son of God, took this step. 
to be baptized in water. And so I want to encourage you. It's a step of obedience. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching uh, to thousands of people, and as he preached the word of God, and as people were convicted of their sins, as people were responding to the message of the gospel, they asked Peter, they said, Peter, what should we do? What's the next step? What should we do? And Peter says, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a step of obedience to the word of God. The word of God tells us to do it. And so we take that step of obedience because he's asking us to do it as we identify with what Jesus has done for us. And that brings me to the next point for baptism. Water baptism is a step of identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection. And you can see it here, even just with these two things of death being the picture here when animals are slaughtered and cleansing and life that comes here through the wash basin. Water baptism is a, is a step in identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. We take baptism after we have committed our life to Jesus to say, I am a follower of Jesus. I am going to walk with Jesus. I confess and acknowledge that Jesus came down to this world, died for my sins, died on Calvary, was buried and rose again on the third day. That's what we celebrate at Easter particularly. And because of that, I identify with that as well because I was dead in my sins and Jesus came and brought me life. Remember, death to life. I was dead in my sins, and Jesus came and brought me life. And because of that, I identify with, in the same way that Jesus died and rose again. That Jesus died, and he was dead for three days. And he came back to life. And that's what happened to me spiritually as well. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6. Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, so when you took baptism to identify with Jesus, because he asked you to do this, and in obedience you took baptism, he's explaining to the church in Rome this, he says, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. In the same way that Jesus died and rose again, when we come to Christ, we go from death to life. And we take baptism to show that, that as we go underneath the water, that is us dead. And as we come up out of the water, it is new life in Christ. Isn't that amazing? That he has, uh, the beauty for me is that all of these things that he says in the Old Testament, as it points forward to what Jesus actually did on Calvary and what he's actually done for us, it's not something that Jesus just came up willy-nilly at the last minute. Oh, well, maybe we can connect this and connect that. Oh, yeah, that, that connects there. No, this was in the heart of God from the foundation of the world. This was in the mind of God. And he planned this out so beautifully. Look at, look at what it says here in 1 Peter. And that water, here's, here he's actually talking about Noah's ark and how uh, the flood covered the whole world. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not the removing of dirt from your body, right? It's not like when you take a shower and, you know, I'm going to get nice and clean and, you know, I'm going to take off all this dirt from my body. But as a response to God from a clean conscience, it is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It's a cleansing that happens, but the effectiveness is why? Because of the resurrection. See, if Jesus died and didn't rise again, then baptism means nothing. And guess what? Our faith means nothing, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. If there's no resurrection, then none of, all of my whole preaching is in vain. But because Jesus rose again, we identify with his death and resurrection. That baptism is identifying with Jesus being put down when he died. But the resurrection speaks of new life in Christ. It speaks of new beginnings for us. In Colossians 2, it says this, For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. Were you buried with Christ when you were baptized? Guess what? We're going to have a baptism on April 21st. You can be buried with Christ, identify with him in baptism. Why? Now, that part doesn't sound so great. Man, Daniel, you want me to be buried? Daniel, you want me to die? I know that part doesn't sound so great, but the next part sounds amazing. And with him, you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. That you are raised to new life. This is what happens at salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our iniquity. We were dead in the way that we grieve the heart of God. We were dead. We were, this, was, this was death here. And God brought us to life. God gives us life and life more abundantly. And so we identify with what Jesus did on Calvary, going and dying for us so that we identify with him. Yes, we were sinners. He took the sin of all humanity upon him, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. Water baptism is a symbol of cleansing and new beginnings. It's a symbol that points towards the day of our salvation. It's a symbol that points towards what Jesus did for us on Calvary. But it's a symbol of new beginnings, of cleansing, of a new start, of a fresh opportunity. In Acts chapter 22, when Paul was explaining to the people what happened to him, how he was a persecutor of the church, how Paul uh, was trying to uh, go against everything that Jesus was doing. And one day as he was on the road to Damascus, Jesus came to him in a vision and he saw the living son of God and that radically transformed and changed his life. He went into Damascus and a man named Simeon came and prayed for him. And Simeon told, uh, told Paul, he said this, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. See, this labor points forward towards this cleansing, this washing, this purification, this opportunity to take this step of baptism as a symbol of what Jesus did at salvation for us, as a symbol of what Christ has done through the atonement for us. It's a cleansing. It's a renewal. It's a sanctification. Paul says it like, uh, says it like this in Galatians. I love the, the wording that he uses here. It's like putting on new clothes. Right? Have you ever felt like, you know, you go to the store and you buy some new clothes and then you're excited, you go home and it's like, okay, the first time I wear it, isn't there a fresh feeling, right? First time you wear some new clothes, if you've worn it for years and years and you've lost that feeling, but when you put on these new clothes, it's a fresh feeling, it's a new beginning. That's what baptism does for us as it points towards the work of Christ in our lives through Salvation. What happened at the brazen altar, what happened at this altar of burnt offering, points towards Jesus 
And this cleansing at the wash basin points towards that newness of life that we get through this cleansing. Number three, the wash basin points towards God's desire for holiness and purity. That's what this wash basin is all about. It's all about holiness and purity, even as we've been singing this morning. The wash basin points towards that. And it happens in our life through different ways. One way that it happens is through the word of God. I'm so thankful that so many of you are reading through the Word of God, are spending quality time in the Word of God, have taken the opportunity to read the Word of God from beginning to end because the Word of God brings sanctification and cleansing in our life. In Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking about how husbands should love their wives just as Christ loves the church, he says this, he gave up his life for her, for the church, to make her holy and clean. How? Washed by the cleansing of God's Word. Washed by the cleansing of of God's word. God's word brings a cleansing in our lives. Jesus said it this way in John 15, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus prayed this prayer and he said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I think I've shared with you before how as a, as a teenager in, in, in high school and I was trying to read through the Bible and, you know, things got busy in high school and I didn't put a priority on it. So Saturday would come and I'd be like, oh, I'm so far behind. And so I would go down to, a, to our basement, uh, into our den, and I would just spend hours, hours just reading and trying to catch up, not for any holy reason or not for any, you know, spiritual reason or anything like that, but just because I needed to catch up. But I always found that after hours of reading, I walked out of that place feeling so clean. I walked out of that den just feeling like I had taken a shower and that I was cleansed and that I was sanctified. It was just something that the word of God did as I read his word. God's desire for holiness in our lives is so that we can be with him and so that he can dwell with us. It happens through the word of God. It happens through the power of the Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us and cleanses us and works in us. In Titus chapter three, it says, when God, our savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life. How? Through the Holy Spirit. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. As the Holy Spirit works in us, as the Holy Spirit cleanses us, the Holy Spirit does a new work in our life. If, if you look at the Old Testament, do you want to see the Trinity in the Old Testament? If you think of the, the sacrifice here, there was an animal that was sacrificed, there was a person that was sacrificing that animal, and there was a priest that was mediating that sacrifice. If you point forward to the New Testament, do you know what that is? Well, the animal that was sacrificed, the lamb that was sacrificed, that was Jesus, right? The offering was sacrificed to somebody that's God the Father. Who was mediating the sacrifice? Who was offering the sacrifice? A priest. And that was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the one that was, uh, is the one that's offering up that sacrifice. He was the priest that was in charge of the sacrifice of Jesus. As Jesus gave and offered his life as a sacrifice to God the Father for the sins of all of humanity. It's the Holy Spirit that is also working in us to bring sanctification uh, in us and through us. In Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about this new covenant 
And I won't read all the verses here, but this new covenant that God makes is a new covenant through the power of the Holy Spirit to cleanse us and to forgive us, to cleanse our, our sins, to put in us a new heart and a new mind that brings cleansing in our lives. It's prophesied about in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36, this prophecy about this new covenant that God was going to make, not according to this old covenant that was based on this physical tabernacle that they built, but it was based on a new covenant with new promises and a greater and more perfect high priest. It says here, I will sprinkle clean clean water upon you and you will be clean. I will put my spirit in you. I will write my laws upon your heart and and, and upon your mind. This is the new covenant that God makes with us because of what Jesus has done for us. And finally, I'll conclude with this about the the desire for holiness and purity from God is so that we can have right to the tree of life. Do you remember what I was saying? How how this place, the most holy place, can be a picture of, of Eden and specifically the tree of life that was blocked off, that people couldn't get to, The tree of life in the Garden of Eden was was blocked off by those cherubims that Adam and Eve couldn't come back into the Garden of Eden and eat of the tree of life and live forever and enjoy that abundant life. No, they couldn't do that. There had to be an atonement that was made, and that's why Jesus came to make that atonement and now to give us life and life in all of its abundance and make a way to come into the most holy place so that we can enjoy that life. And in eternity, in Revelation chapter 22, it says this, blessed are those who wash their robes, Positional sanctification, progressive sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Word of God in cleansing us, the wash basin, cleansing us, drawing us closer to Jesus. They will be permitted to do what? Enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit of the tree of life. Friends, it all comes back full circle. It all comes back full circle to what happened in Eden. A restoration of relationship a restoration of life, to go from death to life. To go from being far away from God to being close to God. Worship team, you can please come. And as you come, I I, I see something in the New Testament that is so beautifully depicted the wash basin. That's in John 13 when Jesus before he was going to die, before he was going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, do you know what Jesus did? He humbled himself, took, out his, took his, his outer cloak off. He filled a, a basin, a wash basin with water. And his disciples were gathered in a room. And him being master and Lord of all, the word of God says in John 13 that Jesus knew that everything was in his power, that he knew that he was Lord of all, And knowing all of that, he bowed down with that wash basin to wash his disciples' feet. And he went one by one, and he came to Peter, and he told Peter, and Peter told him, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And the Lord said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you don't have anything to do with me. He said, well, then then don't just wash my feet, wash my whole body. And the Lord said, no, I don't need to wash your whole body. You are clean. It's just your feet that need to be washed. And after he finished washing all the disciples' feet, he looked at them and he told them, if I, your Lord and Master, have done this to you, then go and do this to others. Can we do that to others? Let me tell you this. If we desire holiness, 
if we desire purity, if we desire sanctification, if we desire to be like Jesus, if our prayer and our longing and our cry is, Lord, change me and transform me to be like Jesus, the first step is humility. The first step is to humble ourselves and follow the example of Jesus. If the depth of our heart cries for relationship with God, if the depth of our heart cries to be more like Jesus, if the depth of our heart cries to say, Lord, please change my anger to love, please change my lust into purity, please change uh, the, my impatience to patience, Please change the way that I am, Lord, that rubs people in the wrong way to be more like Jesus. Then the first step is to follow the example of Jesus and humble ourselves in what Jesus did in washing his disciples' feet. Who is that person in your life that maybe you need to wash their feet? What is that situation in your life that you need to humble yourself as Jesus did and go to that person? If we want sanctification in our life, if we desire to be more like Jesus, let's take the first step to humble ourselves in the sight of God and in the sight of others as well. Let's all stand as we sing this song to be more like Jesus. Mm -hmm.